Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from Heart on Her Sleeve, a Women of World War II Mystery, written by Clarence Buddington Kelland. An outstanding Golden Age mystery classic and one of the most important books about the women of World War II. Heart on Her Sleeve is the story of a patriotic American college girl who steps up to run her father's war plant when he is hospitalized by saboteurs. Not long after the bombing of Pearl Harbor and U.S. entry into the Second World War, the government realized the draft would seriously deplete the country's entire workforce, including entry-level labor, skilled trades, office staff, and management. The only possible replacement was to be found in the ranks of the nation's women. But for women to join the workforce, major changes would have to occur. Traditionally characterized as an emotional and caregiving labor force, homemakers, mothers, nurses, teachers, and the like, women would have to adopt a whole new view of themselves and their capacities, as would men, and quickly. In a world without TV or Internet, a radical re-envisioning of women's capabilities would have to be promulgated via radio, newspapers, and magazines. So the U.S. government called together leading writers and journalists, asking them to help by printing and broadcasting stories, novels, and factual reports supporting the heretical notion that women could make great factory and office workers, and even run those factories and offices, without losing their natural urge to be homemakers, mothers, and wives. This campaign began in the May 29, 1943 Saturday Evening Post with a two-part kickoff. Exploding from the cover, Norman Rockwell's overpowering goddess-proportioned painting of Rosie the Riveter in overalls, with a touch of lipstick and blush, a rivet gun balanced across her thighs, a look of unflappable nonchalance, the stars and stripes unfurled behind her, and a copy of Mein Kampf crushed beneath her feet. And to her left, boxed text beckoned readers to discover the initial installment of a new Kellen serial, Heart on Her Sleeve. And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from Heart on Her Sleeve. Chapter 1 the long, low house of Raoul Senlac gripped a hilltop with its solid foundations and looked down upon the village of Birch Creek, which straggled across the valley two miles below. From its wide veranda, one could see every house and store in the little town, and beyond it the huddle of brick and wood and concrete which made up the plant of Senlac Plywood Company. The river came into the valley from the east and meandered through the village until it passed out of sight to the southward. Nearly every dwelling was white and seemed to have been freshly painted, which was not the fact. A shapely old maple shaded the unpaved streets. It was a place where nothing could happen but birth and death and a placid life on the journey from the one to the other. Ral Senlac, in spite of his name, was New England to the marrow. A remote forebear had voyaged to Quebec with Frontenac, and some adventurous descendant had turned his feet southward to take root in Birch Run long before the village was a village or bore a name. 
Some curious pride of race had moved succeeding members of the family to cling to names that savoured of France, although of French blood there must remain no more than a trace. So, down the years, Norman frugality had vied with Yankee thrift until the mingling of blood had combined the two, with the result that the Senlac family forged ahead of its neighbours to a position of wealth and consequence in the village, the county, and the state. Early Senlacs had seen fit to invest their savings in timberlands, and later members of the family added to the holdings. A small sawmill grew into the Senlac Plywood Company, of which the present Raoul was sole proprietor. He was assisted in spending the profits thereof by a wife who derived no pleasure from prodigality, and by a daughter who had hitherto been given little opportunity to demonstrate her prowess in this important branch of economics. The daughter's name was Andrie. She was twenty-one years old, five feet and five inches tall, with the first head of red hair that history recorded in the clan, and with a very fresh diploma of graduation from Smith College. This document she was bringing home with some surprise, for as yet she set no particular store upon her mental faculties. Her father and mother were waiting on the station platform to welcome her home from her educational adventures, and the train already had whistled warning of its approach from down the valley. Andre sat in the day coach, for there was no Pullman on the branch line that climbed up and down to Birch Creek. She snuggled close to the window with one very nice knee crossed over another very nice knee and thought about herself. She was not considering her personal appearance, because she knew all about that from intensive study of the subject and by comparison with other girls in college, and with pictures in various magazines of the country's accepted beauties. Her conclusion was that she had nothing about which to wail as to her physical qualities. She was prettier than most, and not so lovely as some. Thus she regarded herself as being in the upper brackets and was content. She should have been. What she was considering with detachment was her mental possessions. She was trying honestly to assay them to determine if she was brilliant, just ordinarily bright, or plain dumb. The subject engrossed her. She found, upon searching for her scholarly accomplishments, that she had been able to learn and retain such things as the multiplication table, but she could not add. Never had she been pointed to with pride by an instructor, and no scholarships or golden keys hung from her trophy belt. In other words, she had just squeaked through. However, she did come to the conclusion that she was brighter than people thought she was, which was a very good idea indeed. Because if people think you are beautiful and dumb, then any manifestation of intelligence is greeted by them with surprised cheers, whereas an equal accomplishment by someone with a reputation for brains will pass without comment. Therefore, as a practical matter, it was best to appear to be much less sapient than you actually were. She settled upon this as a very fine rule of human conduct to cause the world to underestimate you. It gave you all the advantages of an ambush. 
If you built for yourself a reputation for being a pretty little thing who never knew exactly what time of day it was, then nobody bothered to try to upset your apple cart. She admitted that possibly she did not know the time to the split second, and that quite possibly she was of inferior mind to the rest of the world. In that case, it would gain her nothing to pretend to be smart. The truth might be that she was just run-of-the-mill. If this was the fact, it didn't make much difference anyhow, because being average got you nothing, whatever, and you must be contented with contentment. But there was a chance that she was as smart as a steel trap, and if it turned out that way, a girl would be silly to let anyone find it out, especially men. As the train rolled along, she mapped out a line of conduct that would carry her through the period of finding out just where she stood mentally. She decided upon a course which can be described only as one of charming inanity with a touch of malapropism. You could become rather noted for it, and people would repeat things you said and like to have you around in the hope that you would say another of them. They would laugh at you, but it would be indulgently and they would think you were cunning. Not engine cunning, but baby cunning. Which would make them be sort of protective and see to it that you got the piece of cake with the nicest frosting on it. But always there was the slightly disturbing thought that maybe she really was precisely that way and she would have to do nothing to create such an impression. The train slowed down and stopped. Andre picked up her suitcase and assumed a wide-eyed expression of frail timidity. Immediately, a lumberjack and a potato buyer bumped their heads in an effort to snatch her bag from her and act as porter. She ran to her father and mother and kissed them with real affection. But even as she did so, she became aware of a uniform inside of which was a young man with a funny face. It was a devastating blue uniform with gold doodads on the sleeves and a cap that sat at a jaunty angle completely suited to the funny face. All this she saw out of the corner of her eye, taking care not to look directly at him. Who is he? she asked in a whisper. Who's is who? asked her father loudly. Hush, cautioned Andre. I mean that eye-filling admiral, or whatever he is. What is he doing so far away from water? Mr. Senlac glanced around, making it perfectly obvious who was under discussion. Not an admiral. Commander. Inspector at the plant. Inspecting what? And for how long? Asked Andre. Bomb noses, said her father, and then with a snort. Uniforms. I think uniforms are sweet, said Andre. Does he have a name? O'Toole, said her father. How perfectly foul, Andre exclaimed. Her mother smiled gently. Mrs. Senlac did everything gently, which deceived a great many persons as to both her firmness and her sense of humor. His first name is quite distinguished. It is Worthington, she said. Andre tried it over mentally. Mrs. Worthington O'Toole, she said to herself, and then aloud. It's a discrepancy, she said firmly. 
A what? her mother asked. Like, said Andre, one end of an animal being a dog and the other a cat. Raoul Senlac managed to extract Andre's baggage checks from her and gave them to the driver of the truck from the plant, and himself went to the express office to inquire about a long-awaited shipment. Andre and her mother waited. Rather belatedly, a curious figure alighted from the train. It was a clerical gentleman with an odd flat hat such as Andre had seen in English pictures with a ministerial collar and a purple waistcoat. He did not wear gaiters, although his costume seemed to require them. And he was enormous. He must have been well over six feet in height, but it was his girth and displacement that startled one. He was huge, not with an adipose hugeness, but with a beefy, wrestler-like hugeness. His head was perfectly round, like a globe, and completely bald. He could, said Andre, have continents and oceans tattooed on it. Hush, said her mother, for the clerical gentleman was approaching them. He spoke in a voice that was thin, reedy, almost effeminately tenor. Ladies, he said with as much unction as he could get into so piping a voice. I am Dr. Lund. My intention is to sojourn among you, seeking rest for my pastoral labors and leisure for contemplation. May I inquire if there is a fitting hotel? He paused, and his round, pale face assumed an avid expression. And as to the quality of the food to be obtained therein. The Birch Creek Tavern, said Mrs. Senlac, is our best. The table is said to be excellent. There, the tall man, is the proprietor, Mr. Bricker. Ah, said Dr. Lund, my thanks to you for speeding the wayfarer upon his road. Andre stared after him with puckered brows. That, she said, is the biggest hunk of man I ever saw. My dear, expostulated Mrs. Senlac at this irreverence but her heart was not in the rebuke. Dr. Lund had not impressed her favorably. A corporal and two first-class privates were busy removing packages from the express office and stowing them in an army car, and Andrew watched them with interest. Army too? she asked. A detachment is camped back by the storage dam, said Mrs. Senlac. They've made it a military area. You can't get near it. This did not engross Andre, for she was studying about competition. I suppose every young man who can dance anything later than the Virginia Reel has gone into the army, she said. There are few left, her mother answered. But all the girls are here, Andre said speculatively. Twenty girls to one man. And the man won't be off the top of the basket or he'd be gone. She peered out of the corner of her very dark blue eyes at the commander, who had emerged from the station. It would be too, too absolutely foul if he were married and had three kids. Papa's calling, said Mrs. Senlac. The most direct course to her father in the car did not pass close to Commander O'Toole, but Andre followed a circuitous route, 
And just as she was abreast of the young officer, she was the victim of misfortune. She dropped her handbag so that it burst open and its contents drooed about the platform. The commander stood very erect, looked at her directly in the eye with a level, unsmiling gaze and said, I ought to let you gather up that mess. It wasn't new when Cleopatra worked it on Caesar. It was the best I could do, said Andre, on the spur of the moment. What was the hurry? he asked, not yet stooping to retrieve her belongings. I'm here for the duration. He spoke rather bitterly. I'm a girl, said Andre, who tries to improve each shining hour, on account of maybe the next hour will be too late. But why pick on me? Because, Andre said frankly, you are the choicest morsel in sight, and a girl that wastes time with all the competition there is around is just simply asking to come out second best. Which you wouldn't like. Which I just absolutely would abhor, said Andre. And I may take it, he said, that if a handsome admiral came along, you would let me pick up this truck so you could spray it at his feet. Not, said Andre, if he has whiskers and grandchildren. An unmarried commander outranks a married admiral, he asked. Heaps, she said. How do you know I'm unattached? he asked. I asked Mama. As far as I'm concerned, he said, you might as well break up battle formation. Why? Are you engaged? Not even slightly. He peered down at her scattered property. I've got my own ideas about it, and one of them is that I don't like redheads. I knew a man once that hated squash pie, she said. The very thought of it made his stomach go flippity-flop. And then, all of a sudden, he got so no meal was complete without it. He never knew what caused the change, but I knew all the time. So, what was it? He just found out, she said, how good squash pie is. He knelt to gather compact and lipstick and purse and other items of her cargo, replacing them in her bag and handing them to her. Your father, he said, is threatened with apoplexy. He only looks like it, she said. Really, he's just in a pet. How did you get to be a commander so young? It must be because you are wonderful. Wasn't that minister repulsive and all? She was very scornful. Thank you for falling for the old stuff. I mean, my dropping my bag. It was sweet and naive of you. Never try to think up a new one when you know the old ones will work. And I could dye my hair if worse came to worst. I do think Papa is edging toward a stroke. You were very unexpected, but so far, not disappointing. You bought a gold brick even when you knew it was a gold brick, and that kind of man makes an ideal husband. She turned her head toward her father. Coming, Papa, she called. I'm all through with the commander for now. We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from Heart on Her Sleeve. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.